If you pass a woman wearing a hijab in the street, what's your reaction? This is at the core of Zoya Patel's book, Once a Stranger. Welcome, Zoya. Thank you so much for having me. Let's get the backstory of the woman who wears the hijab first. Tell us about Kahija. Absolutely. So Khadija is a woman who has spent her life growing up in India and finds herself migrating to Australia with her husband and her two daughters in the mid-1990s. So like a lot of Indian immigrants, I think she's kind of propelled by this vision of a better life and giving her daughters the opportunities that maybe she didn't have. So she's Indian, she's Muslim, she's very connected to her faith. Um, and she really grapples with how to retain that culture and the principles and values that she lives by for her children who are growing up, you know, as small children arriving in Australia and then really absorbing Australian culture the way that kids do when they come here. You know, we're such sponges compared to our parents who are fully formed people when they arrive. And these two daughters, chalk and cheese. Layla is older by two years over Ayat. Now, how about giving us a little... Listen, page 47. The sisters weren't close, even with how isolated they could sometimes feel. Khadija joked that their temperaments were too different. They were like chalk and cheese. Ayat was boisterous and wild. Layla was steady and solemn. Who knows what Allah was thinking when he made you, Khadija would tease. He must have picked the wrong ingredients off the shelf and forgotten to mix a bit into both of you. Ayat liked this image of Allah as the baker of life. She pictured a Santa Claus-like character with a flowery apron and bad eyesight, dropping all the seriousness into Layla's bowl and all the fun into hers. Yes, that's how the girls grew up too. And in Wagga, Keija, the mum, noticed that she's a brown woman in a white country. So how did the girls react at school? I think, again, their chalk and cheesiness really plays a part into it. So obviously... When you grow up in a small regional town, uh, which is similar to my own experience coming to Australia, you often are the only brown kid in the school. And Layla reacts by being very firm and very strong and very, I guess, confident in the way that she approaches it. You know, I'm different and so what? Whereas Ayat finds it quite troubling. I think it's almost like the first time that Ayat realises how different she and her family are from the people around her. And that's a bit of a, it's a bit of a culture shock for her and something she has to learn to navigate. Going home with a question. Oh, are you brown because you're dirty? Asked one of the uh, classmates. Oh. So why did they move to Canberra? So they moved to Canberra to once again find um, better opportunities after their father passes away. So Ahmed, um, who is their father, dies quite early on in the book. It's funny, actually, in my book launch in Canberra recently, my dad asked a question and was like, I just want to point out the father is killed off quite early (laughs) in this book. (laughs) Um, But Cathedra is then left with two young daughters and she figures that a bigger city with more connections, a bigger community of other Muslims as well, will be an easier place to raise them. So she ups and leaves and tries to find, yeah, figure out a new way to be part of a community without her husband. Little quote. Uh, I had hated Sunday school at the mosque. She hated Canberra. She saw her mother changing. Her mother was so strict. It was as as if her daughters were her prisoners and she had to control everything they did. Well, Layla, the oldest sister, grew up and she was more obliging or respectful to their mother. Why did she become a lawyer? 
I think the way that many children of immigrants, especially Indian parents do, because that's what her father would have wanted for her. And, you know, we grew up with like a list of um, acceptable professions. I remember an internet meme actually that went around that really cracked us up, which said there are four occupations for Indian children, doctor, lawyer, engineer, or disappointment to your parents. <laughs> um, and, you know, that wasn't the case in my family. But yeah, I think she wanted to honor her father's memory by taking up a profession that he would have really respected. And how did she meet her husband? She meets her husband on an arranged marriage website. Actually, something that happens quite a lot now and is quite, I guess it's like the Indian version of online dating. What about Ayat? Let's hear from page 137 because as she's chalk and cheese. She sure is. In a way, Ayat had been a liar her whole life. She lied after birthday parties when she was a child, telling Khadija she hadn't eaten any of the jelly lollies that had the haram gelatin in them. She lied when she skipped school one day in year 10 to go to the movies with her friends. She lied when she got the tiny bird silhouette tattooed onto her hip. Lying about being in love was harder than these small transgressions in some ways. But in other ways, it was so much easier than Ayat had expected. Yes, well, Ayat doesn't live at home anymore with her sister and her mother. But her mother, can they can see through her lies, especially after she meets Harry at university and notices regal handsomeness. <laughs> but being in a family was signing up to an unspoken contract. And if you broke that contract, there was set consequences. So what was the consequences for Ayat? Well, for Ayat, it was ultimately a choice between her family and Harry and her independence. Because as Khadija tells her, and as she knew, it was you know, Khadija's way or estrangement being kind of cut out of the family because there was no way for Khadija to condone something that went so against her values and her culture and religion. So mm. that was the that was the consequence, unfortunately. And it all happened at a Fathia, a special prayer to commemorate a happy occasion, to give thanks and seek Allah's blessing. But this is another quote. If the people coming knew that Ayat was having sex outside of marriage, that she was with a white man, that she drank alcohol, Kadir's entire life would be changed, her status in the community irrevocably altered. How about page 212? Let's get, get the mother's idea. So this takes place right after Khadija kind of finds out about Ayat's relationship and responds to Ayat saying, you know, you love me less than you care about what other people think. And Khadija says, I don't care what people think, Ayat. I care only what Allah thinks. And if you do this, if you keep living like this, you are tearing apart my status as a mother in his eyes. You understand? It's my duty to have you married with respect and decency. What kind of mother, what kind of Muslim am I if I let this happen? Yeah, so that's six years. So Ayat's missed the wedding of a sister and the birth of a niece. She really does have different religious beliefs compared to a mother, doesn't she? Yeah, and I think that's often the case for, you know, second generation immigrants or um, even just second generation children of people who are deeply religious. It changes generation on generation. And that connection to religion can really become something that's a bit more intangible. And as I kind of explores throughout the book, whilst she doesn't believe in the organized religion of Islam, there's still a spirituality that I think you kind of absorb when you're raised with religion. And so it's quite hard for her to reckon 
with that, you know, to really unpick everything that she thought was real about the world when she starts challenging it herself as an adult. And that's a rift that's quite hard to, to cross. And it's a big question that even if Harry converts, well, we might just leave that there. So after six years of silence, then Layla broke the silence with an email to her sister. What was in the email? So Ayat suddenly receives the first communication from her family to be told by Layla that her mother has been diagnosed with a terminal illness and that her sister thinks that she should come home. And her mother's dying wish? Motor neuron disease. So oh, her mother died. <laughs> I thought you said her mother's dying with. Her mother's dying wish is to go back to India um, to see the country that she was from one last time. Ah, so big sister Layla has to get, navigate a foreign country, her mother's illness and their stilted relationship all at once. And Ella, give me strength. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book's called Once It's Stranger and Harry wonders about Ayat in India, surrounded by her family. Would she feel like a stranger to him? And through the book, we have another mention of strangers, the regular rudeness of strangers. Mm. And when people saw a middle-aged ethnic woman, they assumed she was fresh off the boat, unlike her daughters, whose Australian accent offered a sort of protection. They would flank her when they went shopping, sending dark looks to anyone who gave them even the slightest hint of negative energy. And then it was I, often feeling like a stranger often feeling on the outer and she sensed it when she met Harry's parents. What happened then? I guess she sees in them a flicker of oh when they see that she's not white Australian and I think that's something that a lot of people I guess of my cultural background or experience feel when we do meet strangers, um, groups of people who may not know that we're Indian, may not know that we're people of colour and you never really know what reaction you're going to get. So even though Harry's parents are perfectly polite to Ayat, she always feels a little bit like she's not quite what they expected. Another little quote from One Stranger. Ayat would bristle when Indian men and women they didn't know, who served them at the supermarket or drove them in a taxi, slid their eyes over her in judgment when she was with Harry. It was hard for her not to see Khadija's face reflected in the disapproving looks of strangers. Yeah. And of course, bringing a complete stranger into your life with an arranged marriage. <laughs> <laughs> you write about the different generations of migrants. The um, third generation, free from the level of identity crisis with no genuine connection to their parents' home. But what are the first migrants? What do they retain as the memory of their home country? It's such a curious experience, I think, and one that I tried to kind of unpack in this book of coming somewhere as a fully formed adult, but in a way, your understanding of your culture from your home country is kind of locked in that moment in time. So, you know, they bring their cultural expectations and beliefs and values to a country like Australia, and then back home, things are evolving and things are changing and it's all moving forward and progressing, but they can't understand that because they're kind of stuck in that moment that they came that they came from and I think that's kind of a really interesting area to explore because there's this kind of desire to enforce those cultural norms on your kids even while people your children's age back home are living much more liberal lives. Mm. 
So what could be so important in a family that one member would be ostracised? Zoya Patel has the mother and sisters explain their reasons, but will it be possible for the family to re-engage in Once a Stranger? Before I let you go, tell everybody what you're doing at the Wheeler Centre tomorrow night. I have somehow find myself um, programmed to be part of a literary death match which is a event series that is from overseas and is actually really popular. Um, and it's kind of part comedy show, part literary readings. Apparently four writers participate, but only one can win. I'm a little bit anxious. Um, <laughs> if it's meant to be funny, I wrote a very sad book, so I'm going to have to try and figure out a way to jazz that up. Um, but yes, Wheeler Centre Friday night. Well, you did kill off your father unnecessarily. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. It would be easier if he was on stage. He's quite funny. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Zoya Patel. David. Oh, thank you, Jan. Now, exploration was a precarious thing in those early days of Australia's settlement. And this is clearly brought out to, uh, and brought to life in Anthony Hill's fictionalised account of Matthew Flinders' circumnavigation of Australia in the novel The Investigators. So, Anthony, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Now, one of the first things that struck me was the level of nepotism and the influence of the admiralty in the social fabric of English life. How did the admiralty work out the priorities of who was going to explore, how they, what they were going to look at? It, it, it seems... Uh, almost chaotic. Well, it was an age of influence, of course, an age of empire, an age of war. The Napoleonic Wars were raging, don't forget. The Admiralty was an arm of government, one of the senior government departments, the wooden walls that kept England uh, free from invasion. Uh, and that day of the age, uh, British government was run by aristocrats, by lords, Earl St Vincent, Earl Spencer, they were the first lords of the Admiralty uh, and had immense power and they decided where and when the Navy would go. Their pri first priority, of course, was to the, the sea battles and, uh, and to the war at sea with Napoleon. I begin the book with the Battle of Copenhagen, uh, one of the bloodiest battles of the war where my young hero, John Franklin, uh, just joined the Navy as a young... He was only a volunteer at that point. Uh, he was in the battle, and it finishes with Trafalgar. After uh, the investigator voyage that circumnavigated Australia and the great adventures of being marooned and cast away and eventually finding their way back home, uh, he was at Trafalgar, and he was apparently one of only a very few men on the deck of his ship, quarterdeck, who was not injured in that war, in that battle. But here's the interesting thing. In order to get preferment in society and elevate and uh, professionally advance... You virtually had to risk your life, as John Franklin does on the mm. Polyphemus, mm. where you where you open the book. I mean, there's there's no guarantee you're going to get through. No guarantee you're going to survive the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, or you'd be only one uninjured in it. Uh, no, but it was the age of influence, as I said. It's an aristocratic age, and uh, the great lords uh, ran everything. And the only way to advance uh, for <clears throat> uh, both Flinders and Franklin were born middle class young uh, into the middle classes. Uh, Flinders' father was a doctor. Franklin's father was a, a shopkeeper, a successful merchant. But the only way to sort of progress, really, 
was through the army or the navy, the navy especially. That's where you, not only if you were good at it, you could proceed through the ranks and get well paid, but in the navy there was always a chance in great battles uh, to secure a prize. But also nepotism played an enormous role in how these uh, people got preferment or the connections they made. Mm. There's a connection between John Franklin and Matthew Flinders. Yes, they were cousins. And uh, uh, it was uh, Flinders uh, who first, you know, inspired the idea in, in John Franklin, the young lad, that he wanted to go to sea. Flinders himself had been inspired by reading Robinson Crusoe. In, in Franklin's case, it was, a, it was a literally the first time he saw the sea. Uh, he was 12, he, he walked from school down to the coast and he saw that uh, he, he knew that there was nowhere else he wanted to go. Flinders was in Australia, uh, in New South Wales, while Franklin was growing up, and he would write letters home. There was a circle of his family and the other families around, the Chappelle family. Um, uh, and Chappelle was uh, whom Flinders married. Uh, they lived at a nearby village and they were drawn to the circle of friends. They would circulate poems and letters and uh, elevated thoughts on nature and life. You know, it was the beginning of the age of romanticism. But here we go now with the problems of nepotism because on the investigator, the, the vessel circumnavigating Australia, we have Matthew Flinders, of course, mm. as the captain, John Franklin mm. as a midshipman, mm. But Samuel Franklin, Lieutenant... Samuel Flinders. What did I say? Franklin. Flinders, yes. So, Matthew's brother. But you've got all sorts of problems emerging now, sibling rivalry. Well, well, Flinders was a great seaman and a great navigator, and his brother Samuel wasn't. Uh, He got his position on board... Uh, through, through his brother. His brother paid for him uh, to pa- pass his lieutenant's examination. He hated the sea. Uh, he thought, told his father he thought it was a very dreary business and there was no chance of making any money out of it. And he wanted his father to set him up in another trade, but father wouldn't, you know, he'd spent enough money on his son. Well, spend enough money on Matthew. I mean, Samuel has a go at, at, at Matthew. You know, you're the preferred son. You're the, you're the eldest son and the preferred one and he didn't spend money on me. And the story is... It's the people on board the ship as well as the, where they went and what they did and what they discovered. It's the relationships between the, pe- the people on board. But and he- that's a key point of um, conflict with not only Flinders and his brother, but with uh, Samuel Flinders and John Franklin, the young midshipman. Because there's this dispute about winding of the clock. Well, they were, they, were, they, were, they were cousins. And so there was this familiar, familial tension because uh, Franklin was very good. He excelled at mathematics and he very quickly learnt the art of navigation. Flinders taught him his navigation during the voyage and he became a, a celebrated navigator and explorer himself in later life. And I used him as a vehicle to tell the story because he went on to become a, one of the most famous explorers of the 19th century. He, he discovered the Northwest Passage and lost his life in the doing of it. But, but here we go, because John Franklin cannot challenge no. Samuel Flinders, because you can't question a superior no, officer. No, exactly. There's the hierarchy. Uh, there's the hierarchy of society at large, which meant that people like Flinders and Franklin had to go into a profession like the navy and risk their lives in doing so. But there's the hierarchy of the ship, and the captain has absolute authority in the ship. Uh, in fact, uh, Flinders. Uh, Unfortunately, on the way home, their ship fell apart. The investigator was falling apart. He had to get a second ship, uh, the Porpoise, to sail back to England to get a, a new ship of discovery. They were only out at sea for 12 or 10 days and they hit a reef. 
off the Barrier Reef and spent uh, two months nearly marooned on a desert island. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was this, this kind of uh, tension and the hierarchy. Matthew Flinders was on his way back to England was captured by the French. We called it Mauritius. And he was held prisoner of war for six years. And there are letters from him, very poignant to his wife, his poor wife, left behind, uh, and uh, in which he was saying how the experience of being imprisoned by the French uh, gave him a taste of, of what it was like uh, how, to be a captive of somebody with this great insolent power over him. And he feared that he himself as a captain was falling into similar traits. Oh, interesting. It is. It's very a period of self-revelation. I talk about this at the end of the book. you know. But here's the other go. Anne Chappelle. How did these women survive? Because he married her hoping to take her out to Australia while he continued his circumnavigation, was prevented. They were just married. He has to leave her behind. They were just married. He was promoted commander to command investigator. And uh, he thought he... He was, he was writing out his will. He was not... They'd, they'd, they'd split apart. They couldn't afford to marry. Then he got promoted and he was writing out his will, leaving most of his estate to Anne if she was unmarried when he died. Uh, but it so inflamed his passions, he, he asked her to marry him. And they, they, he went up to, up, to, up to Lincolnshire and married her uh, overnight and uh, brought her back to the ship. She was only on board for a couple of months, not even that in harbour at uh, Portsmouth and Sheerness. And uh, the Admiralty found out about him and wrote to him, and Banks wrote to him, Sir Joseph Banks wrote, saying, the Admiralty says that if you take your wife to Australia, you will be superseded. Yeah. And so most she of their married behind. life was spent apart. Oh, and, and then he was captured. They, She didn't see him for nine years after he left. But you've also mentioned the French, and now this is what becomes interesting about exploration and the role of that mm -hmm. exploration in national affairs. And here's a quote from the book. He claimed the secret purpose of the Bodan expedition was Napoleon's desire to do whatever may humiliate the eternal rival of our nation, mm -hmm. which appeared to be capturing Sydney. Perron considered it a brilliant conception, moreover, to use a scientific voyage to spy out the enemy's colony. So exploration has this incredible role in international affairs. Well, as I said, it was the age of empire too. And Britain and France is probably the two most powerful European nations, certainly in terms of exploration. There was this great rivalry between them uh, to establish colonies. Uh, the French uh, had colonies in, in, well, in India as well. Oh, had until the British expelled them. They had influence in China. The East India Company, the British East India Company, was very concerned if the French established a colony in Australia, it could threaten their sea routes uh, from China, particularly the the, the wealth from China. Um, the whole it was it was it's a conflux of, of reasons. It really was whether whether the French really wanted to establish a colony in in Tasmania, as it was thought, or to take over Sydney. Uh, Perron was a man uh, making representations largely from his own uh, imagination, I think. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, here he was giving the governor of Mauritius uh, plans for invading Sydney. If you do it now, you'll be able to do it now quickly. It's only small, but in 20 years' time he can't. You've got all of these 
currents undergoing the political, the personal, the social uh, in the voyage. But these ambitions about exploration and forming territories hang by a thread because the ship can flounder. I mean, the investigator itself had to be recorked and such like, and eventually um, Matthew Flinders had to get a new boat mm. only, of course, to flounder in when the dolphin <laughs> run, run aground, run yeah. aground on a reef, yeah, it was it was well, it was an age of um, you know sh- sailing ships at sea. He had a chronometer, a timepiece, which helped him uh, be more accurate in his navigation. And John Franklin's role was really uh, in charge of the timekeepers under Samuel Flinders. You know, you've got this hierarchy: who's responsible for getting to wind up the timekeepers? But um, it, it was it, it was constantly uncertain. An investigator was rotting. They didn't think she had six months when she was at the top of the uh, Gulf of Carpentaria. And uh, they ended up going to Timor to try and get refreshments, but then they got an outbreak of dysentery and scurvy, and Flinders could barely sit in the boat. He was so, so sore with scurvy. But the charts and all of these sorts of things could so easily be lost. Well, they could have, of course. Yeah. I mean, La Perouse, the French, uh, the French explorer who, in fact, met the... Uh, the, uh, Philip at uh, Botany Bay, four days after the first fleet arrived at Botany Bay, uh, La Perouse and his sister ship sailed into, into, into Botany Bay, left his charts to be sent back to Europe, uh, went off and disappeared completely. And here's the other irony. There's a form of cooperation, uh, but I'm calls in um, at, at um, Sydney Harbour and mm-hmm. such like, La Perouse. Yep. It's, uh, and yet... Flinders then was incarcerated. Oh, well, it's just appalling. The uh, Bodang, when he met Bodang off at, at Encounter Bay, w- Flinders' great achievement uh, was to chart the coast from roughly the head of the Great Australian Bight, which he named. Uh, south, the east coast of the Bight, he discovered the two gulfs, St Vincent and Spencer, uh, after the First Lords. And Kangaroo Island, which he named because it had a wonderful feast, the first fresh meat they'd eaten for months. And he met Baudin at Encounter Bay, roughly where Lake Alexandrina is. Uh, and he realised he wasn't going to discover the rest of the south coast. But uh, he met Baudin. Baudin eventually came back to Sydney for refreshment. And he, they were suffering dreadfully from scurvy. And they were taken and cared for and fed. But also the courtesy. Uh, mm-hmm. Shown to buy down that because this is what you'll encounter. Be careful, sort of thing. So there's and no he operation. Showed him, he showed him his yeah. charts. He he didn't when he met Boda, um, but he did tell him about the two gulfs and about the two about Kangaroo Island where there were refreshments, and um, because that was you did it was the courtesy of the sea mariners, particularly on an unknown coast, and it's very hard when you're writing to convey adequately the sense that there was this blank space in the map between the head of the Gulf, uh, the head of the Bight, and, 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 and Tasmania. You didn't know. Nobody knew what was there. And it was very hard for me as a writer to, to actually convey this sense. Well, that sense comes out in the book The Investigators by Anthony Hill, so the listener and reader are going to have to read more to find out 
What happened on the voyage around Australia? Well, with Trim the Cat, by the way, named Tristram Shandy, and it's a Penguin Random House release, Jan. Right. Well, I had um, Zoe Patel here talking about once a stranger with with the last lot, one another lot of migrants coming to Australia. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> And there was a cat in that too. 